Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, today we are going to have our worship service take a little bit of a, of a different form as we remember a significant historical event, the Reformation. Now, this may be something that you know a lot about or a little about, but maybe this illustration will, will help us to anchor what really happened in the Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago. Now, a way to make sense of this is to think about silver. How many of you have some silver in your home? Maybe some silverware or some silver jewelry? What happens to that silver when it is exposed to the elements of this world? Over time, if it's not cared for properly, it will begin to take the contaminants of the environment that it's in and have it obscure its brilliance and its beauty. Now, when that happens and your silver becomes green or looks dirty, we don't throw it away, do we? No, we'll hang on to it. Why? Because it is something that is valuable. But when we hang on to it, we don't leave it marred. We actually take the time to clean it and to polish it to return it to its brilliance. Now, this process is something that doesn't just happen uh, with precious metals, but it also happens with precious movements, the movement of God in the world with his people. And we, we've seen it historically where God revealed his truth in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, but by the time that Jesus walked on the earth in the first century A.D., that truth had been in an environment with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others where it had taken on some contamination from the world. And so because of that, when Jesus shows up, he doesn't just discard that system, but instead what he does is he takes the time to polish it and to return it to its brilliance so we can understand the truth of God. And if you were with us last summer here at Wildwood, we preached through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 where Jesus did just that and he, he purified God's truth as it had been corrupted by the world around us. Now, I want us to fast forward from the time of Christ some 1,500 years into the life of the church that Jesus had established. And, and what we see is over time, the environment of religion in the world had contaminated the purity and the beauty of the gospel. And so this time, instead of uh, the, the being obstructed with you know, this view of Judaism, it had been the, the truth of the gospel had become clouded with things like indulgences and works-based salvation, and the authority of human leaders inside the church even over the authority of Scripture. And because of those things, and because of Jesus' great love for the church, he sent forth some reformers in the church, men like John Calvin and John Wycliffe and John Huss and Martin Luther, who over a season of time were used by God to polish the truth of the gospel and return it to its brilliance. And as they polished this truth, several principles became clear, and they became known by their, their Latin names. Well, what were those principles? Well, one of those principles, that these were all solas, or Latin for only or alone, one of those, those principles, one of those solas was soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Another of the, the principles that were highlighted inside of the Reformation 
had to do with sola scriptura and the elevation of scripture over and above human leaders inside the church, that they would be obeyed and followed only as they taught the word of God. Also, things like sola gratia, by, by grace alone, our salvation is a gift of God, that we receive sola fide through faith alone. And lastly, all of this is possible only because of the work of Christ, solus Christus in Christ alone. And so this morning in our time of worship, what we're going to do is we're going to take these five principles of the Reformation and we're going to remember them and why they're significant and important in our Christian lives. And the first of these principles that we're going to highlight is the principle of to the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. And the way that we're going to do that today is by singing a song of praise to God alone. So as, as we gather to worship, would you stand and lift up our hearts as we gather, you can almost imagine us gathering with the angels in heaven as we sing the text of the truth of God, of what's happening in heaven right now. Let's sing praise to him. We gather and we lift up his name. One of the principles of the Reformation that was polished for us by the Reformers. But a second of those principles is this, the principle of Scripture alone. Now, in order to understand this and its emphasis, we need to understand a little of the context of that time where human tradition and specifically even leaders within the church were given authority irrespective of the scripture. In other words, if the Pope said it, you were to do it even if what they were asking you to do was contrary to scripture. Well, men like John Huss in Bohemia stood up against that idea and said that it is scripture alone that the Pope even sits under and we are to obey our earthly leaders only as they are inviting us to operate inside of God's Word. That position, by the way, that Huss put forward ultimately cost him his life. And Huss, in his language, that last name actually um, meant goose. And Huss said, even at his death, a hundred years before Luther's time, Huss said, you may cook this goose, but eventually a swan will come along after me that you will not be able to silence. And a hundred years after Huss came Luther, who symbol of a swan is something that is still associated with the Lutheran tradition today. This idea of in Scripture alone, that it's authority even over our human leaders. Now, it's interesting, this principle of Scripture alone is something that all of us have benefited from as the truth of God's Word in the Holy Scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, have been translated for us into a language that we understand. You know, earlier I, I've had some words on the screen that were Latin. Thankfully, we've translated those so that we can understand them, and that has not always been the case. And the time before the Reformation, the Christian services and the Christian scriptures were in a language that the people didn't understand. One of the reformers, John Wycliffe, uh, believed that these scriptures should be translated in a language that we understand. He said this, he said, Christ and his apostles taught the people in the language best known to them. It is certain that the truth of the Christian faith becomes more evident the more faith itself is known. Therefore, the doctrine should not only be in Latin, but in the vulgar tongue or the common language. And as the faith of the church is contained in the scriptures, the more these are known in a true sense, the better. 
the laity ought to understand the faith and as doctrines of our faith are in the scriptures, believers should have the scriptures in a language which they fully understand. To be ignorant of the scripture is the same thing as to be ignorant of Christ. And so in our tradition for 500 years, the scriptures have been translated into a language that we understand. And we ought to be thankful for that as we remember that today. And because of that, we ought to also be reminded that we always take the truth of Scripture and we translate it forward into a language that each generation might understand. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to sing two songs that remind us of this principle. One song that was written in the 1600s and another song that was written in 2017. And as we sing these songs separated by 400 years but united by a common Savior, let's remember that we always take the truth of Christ and we have the privilege of carrying it forward and translating it in a way that people understand because that is what God intends. Father God, we are so thankful as we gather here today and as we worship that we are mindful of the fact that you did not intend the good news of Jesus Christ to be confined to just one nation or just to one era of time. Because Father, you came and you revealed the reality of who you are through the living word of Jesus and you had it recorded in the common languages of the day so that it might be taken outside of that nation into the nations and that it might be translated and taken from one generation and one season and one time to the next. And we, as we gather here today, Father, are recipients of that blessing that you desired for even people in 21st century North America to be connected to you, that you made the gospel portable and that you brought the truth of the reality of Jesus to each and every one of us. Father, thank you for that blessing. And so as we gather here today and as we lift up your name and we remember that we do all that we do to the glory of God alone and as we sit under the authority of your word and as we reflect on the grace that you have given and the faith that you have given to respond to that grace and all of this done within Christ, we are so thankful, Father, for what you have polished and preserved in history that we are invited to believe even now. And Father, I pray that you would guide us in the balance of our time, that we would continue to lift you up through the giving of our tithes and offerings, through our examination of your word, our response in faith, and our celebration of the Lord's table together. We pray that you would be honored in it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Well, we are this morning remembering the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so far in our time, we have remembered a couple of those principles that the Reformation was polishing and preserving and reminding us of. The principle of to the glory of God alone, the principle of in Scripture alone, and in the balance of our time today, we're going to look at the final three principles of the Reformation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we're going to 
have those three principles come alive to us as we look at a very familiar passage of Scripture found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're going to spend a little bit of time there today. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture for us, isn't it? Uh, If you're a part of our Awana program as a leader or you came through that as a student, this is a verse that you would have seen. If you were a part of a ministry that went out on campus and shared your faith when you were in college, you might have memorized Ephesians 2, 8, 9 as I did as a part of Campus Crusade for Christ back when I was a student at OU. Um, Or maybe just even as you've been around Wildwood, this is a verse that you have heard referenced or read in several contexts. Well, as we think about remembering what God has done through the Reformation, this uh, verse takes great clarity for us, and I want us to look a little more in depth at it today to see really what this verse has in store for us. And so we're going to look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. I want to read those verses for us, and then we'll back up and see a little more about it together. Verse 8 says this, it says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now in these two verses, we see these principles of the reformation of grace and faith in Christ revealed to us, and so I want to organize this verse by these two key words. We even see them in the passage, grace and faith. First of all, I want us to look at this idea of by grace alone. Now, we see this throughout verses 8 and 9. I mean, specifically, it begins right with the very first word of this verse, the little three-letter word, for. Now, when we see that word for, it reminds us that what Paul is going to say in verses 8 and 9 is intimately connected to the things that he has just said. And in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2, Paul has been talking about the nature of our salvation, how we are people who were spiritually dead, and we have been made alive in Christ. And what's interesting is, in verse 7, after describing the nature of our salvation and what has come about for us in Christ, Paul says this in verse 7. He says, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I think this is what that four in verse eight is connecting to. And this is maybe how we could understand it. What Paul wanted us to see and what God wants us to see is that our salvation The purpose of it in eternity is that we might be a demonstration of God's grace that would exist forever in his presence. If you will, we might become a trophy of God's grace. That is the intention of our salvation. He says, so that in the coming ages, forever and ever and ever, God's immeasurable riches of grace might be evident in us. We have become a trophy of his grace. Now, This maybe is a way for us to to understand that a little bit. How many of you have ever watched the State of the Union Address? In the State of the Union Address, every January, the president takes 
uh, the stage and he talks to the joint session of Congress and he talks to the nation. And as the, the president talks in that setting, sometimes there will be people who will be sitting with the first lady and other dignitaries up in the balcony. And as the president is talking about his agenda and the important things to him that year, he will reference various things and sometimes he will connect something that he has said to someone who is sitting in the balcony. Have you ever seen this happen? So that if there's a, a military battle going on, there might be a soldier in the balcony or the wife of a fallen soldier in the balcony that the president can use as a demonstration, a representation in the room of something that the nation is experiencing. Or if there are fires that are raging, there might be a, a firefighter who's sitting there or a police officer or whoever. There, there are people who are sitting in the balcony who are representatives of something the nation is going through. Friends, when we think about what God has done for us in eternity, God has, you can imagine Jesus speaking to the eternal audience of angels and of those who are redeemed. And as he is speaking, we are sitting in the balcony. And as he talks about his grace, he points in our direction. Because we are there as a living reminder, a living testament of the grace of God. Because we did not get there because we were so pious. We did not get there because we were so smart. We did not get there because we are so righteous or because we were born in the right country or because we spoke the right language. We find ourselves in the presence of God forever merely because of the grace of God. We have become a trophy of his grace. Friends, we need to remember that. So Paul says, for this reason, you have been saved to be a trophy of God's grace for all eternity. He continues. He says, for by grace you have been saved. Now what does grace mean? Grace means a gift. It's nothing that we've earned. It's nothing that is a, a reward. It's not a wage. It's not something that God is obligated to extend towards us. It is something that he has just given in spite of us. And he connects that idea to our very salvation. Our salvation is tied not to our performance. Our acceptance from God is not tied to anything other than God's grace. It is by his choice, by his grace, by his mercy that we have any hope. God has just extended that to us. It's an important concept for us to remember. We don't live that way, do we? I mean, the programming of our brain, the contamination of our world, the pollution of our flesh has taken this principle of God's grace and it has coded it in our performance. But the reformers took that truth that we have polluted and that had been polluted by the church leaders in uh, over the first 15 centuries of the church and they polished it so that we could see it fresh and new again. In its absolute brilliance that our hope for all eternity is found not in us but absolutely in, entirely in him. It is by grace that we have been saved. Now it's interesting, he continues, he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. We'll talk about that faith here in a moment. But the very next thing he says is this, and that is not your own doing. Now, what does the that refer to? It is, what does it refer to? Biblical scholars have debated this for a long time, but you know what I think that that refers to? It refers to our faith. 
to refer to our faith. It is by grace that we've been saved. We embrace that gift through faith, but guess what? That faith is not even our own. That faith is another gift that God has given. I mean, may we never be people who tell our testimony in any way that glories in us. It always ought to glory in God because it is his grace. And we don't even glory in our faith because the faith that we have, whatever we have, is just another gift from God. God not only wraps up our salvation and places it in front of us, but he even gives us the hands that we would be able to open it with. Friends, it is all about God's grace. Our hope for eternity is found entirely in him and what he has done for us. It's a gift. When we understand really the holiness of our God and we understand the depth of our sin, there's no other option than for our salvation to be a gift. Either that or we would have no part of it. He calls salvation here a gift and that's a gift that is very precious to us as we realize that God has offered us forgiveness, he's offered us hope, he's offered us presence in his family, all of those things. It's just a gift that has been given. There, there's no performance that we can do that would be enough. You know, Martin Luther is somebody who, who found this out in history. God took him through a process to reveal to him the, the beauty of the grace of God. And, and the way that it happened in Luther's life is oftentimes the way it happens in our life as well, where Luther tried to obey God to the full. He was a monk. He had devoted his life to spiritual disciplines, but he found them at, at some level unsatisfying. Listen to what Luther said as he described his moment of conversion. He says, I was a good monk. And I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may ever say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. By the way, in honor of the 500 years of the Reformation, use that word at least once today, the monkery. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and readings and other works. But ultimately, it was not enough. Because a holy God and a sinful man, there's a separation there that only a gift can bridge. Luther came to realize that gift was Christ. He trusted in him. and Salvation came to his soul. This idea that Luther shared, it was, it was not something that was new or novel. Remember, the picture that we have is of polishing the tarnish off the truth. That's what happened in the Reformation. This idea goes all the way back. Think of what Polycarp said in the second century. He said this, he says, In whom Jesus, not having seen, you believe with joy inexpressible and glorious, which many long to experience, knowing that by grace you have been saved, not by works, but the will of God through Jesus Christ. Friends, that wasn't written in the Reformation. That was written in the second century. The Reformers merely polished what was found in Paul's writings, what was found in the teachings of Jesus, what was taught in the early church. They removed the pollution of the world and reminded us of this great principle that is by grace alone that we're saved. This grace, this gift is received by us. It's received in faith. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, this this gift, this grace that God has given us in Christ, it must be appropriated in our lives, but it is appropriated not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of merely receiving it in faith. 
That's what Paul taught. That's what Jesus taught. And that's the same thing that the reformers clarified that we live inside of. It's this idea that there is a faith that we need to receive that which God has given. Now, because we receive the gift of God by faith and not by works, we can honestly say that if you're sitting here this morning, even today, and you find your heart stirring by the grace of God and you want to respond in faith, it's possible for you to receive that gift of eternal life right now. You see, if salvation was responded to on the basis of works, this is how the conversation might go. You feel God stirring in your heart, we might say to you, hey, that's great that you feel something moving on the inside, but guess what? Go and live a good life for a really long time and hope it's enough. But that's not what the truth of the gospel says. When we polish the truth and return it to its brilliance, what we see is that this gift of life is received not by our performance, not by our piety, not by our good works, but it's received in faith. We merely believe and grab onto this principle. And in that act, salvation comes to us so that we, John would say, might know might know, might know that we have eternal life. How could that be possible if it were on the basis of works? It couldn't be. Because if, it's, if we get there on the basis of our good works, we could lose it on the basis of our bad ones. And yet, we have a hope that is secure as we receive by faith the gift of God. Again, friends, this is not something that is a new idea. It's something that's a very old idea. Listen to what Clement said in the very first century, contemporary of Peter, a disciple of John. He said this, he says, And we therefore, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, we are not justified through ourselves or through our wisdom or understanding or piety or deeds which we accomplished in holiness of heart, but through the faith by which all those since the beginning... Almighty God has justified to him be the glory forever. Friends, that wasn't a reformer. That was the very first followers of Christ, the second generation believers. They talked about it not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of Christ's work as we receive it in faith. Victorinus in the fourth century said it this way, faith itself alone grants justification and sanctification. Thus, any flesh whatsoever, Jews or those from the Gentiles, is justified on the basis of faith, not works or observance of the Jewish law. Friends, the Reformers take this very old idea that had become, that, that had become marred by the religion of our world and they polished it to return it to its brilliance. And we today sit here with the incredible privilege of learning about the gospel in its true form by grace through faith. But as we wrap up our, our time of worship today, we need to remember that fifth sola, the fifth alone statement, and that is the principle of in Christ alone. Because here's the thing, our faith is only good if what we are placing our faith in is valid. And the reformers understood and the scripture teaches that it is in Christ that our faith is secure because Christ's work on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. And Jesus really did rise from the dead to demonstrate that he was the eternal son of God who really could prepare a place for us that we would go and join him. 
And so because of who Jesus is, our faith has its anchor in the grace of God revealed in the person of Christ to the glory of God for our hope forever. And friends, the way that we're going to remember the, the, the principle of in Christ alone today is by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So I'm going to invite our team that is helping with communion today to go ahead and to move to their stations. And you'll notice there are six places around this room where you will be able to take the communion elements today. We have two at the front, two in the middle, and two at the very back of the room. And in just a moment, when I invite you to come forward, I invite any of you who are, have professed faith in Christ to come and get the elements that remind us of the body and the blood of Christ as we will remember the principle of in Christ alone by celebrating communion together. So those in the front sections, I would invite you to come down the center aisle to one of the two front stations. Those in basically the front half of the back section, um, if you would move forward to the stations in the middle, again, come down the center aisle and then off to the side and back to your seats down the outside. And then in the very back of the room, there are stations behind you. I'm gonna invite you to go and grab those elements and then hang on to them and we will partake of them together after everyone has been served and we are back at our seats. If you need assistance with communion today, we'll be happy to deliver that to you after everyone has been served. So at this time, I wanna invite you to come and take the elements. Mm-hmm.